pretty much uh, every day uh, the last week up until yesterday, I've had uh, a phone call from at least one of you, sometimes a, uh, a few uh, in the same day, uh, about, uh, and I've been posed the question, will the collapse of Evergrande cause a global financial crisis like 2008? Um, and the assumption, therefore, is that Evergrande will collapse is first. And, uh, uh, but I, I, will, I will assume that Evergrande or a major uh, Chinese property company does collapse sometime between now and February next year. So, okay, I'll assume that um, for the purpose of discussion. And... Um, uh, and my answer was no, but no, that won't cause an international financial crisis. But I'll talk about the reasons that I believe that that's the case, um, uh, as I have, as I've been doing uh, during the week. The first reason uh, is that China isn't part of the international monetary system uh, and the international financial system is the same way as we are or Canada is or Europe is or the United States uh, is. In Australia or Canada or uh, the UK uh, or the United States, uh, we all have fully uh, deregulated flooding exchange rates. <clears throat> and those flooding exchange rates uh, have... Uh, no capital transactions. <clears throat> and that means that uh, that uh, freely floating exchange rate and uh, the fact that you can move unlimited capital in any particular currency, that's what uh, makes those currencies capable of being reserved currencies. Uh, for example, uh, the Central Bank of Russia doesn't hold US dollars as, uh, as its reserved currencies. It holds a combination of Australian dollars and Canadian dollars. Um, uh, and uh, uh, all of those other countries uh, are held as reserve currencies, but not the RMB, um, with, uh, you know, except in very small quantities. If we look at the international transactions that are done in RMB, they're pretty much all in count, uh, accounted for by transactions between China and Hong Kong uh, with uh, capital flows going in, uh, going in both directions. The very, very tiny transactions outside that. When uh, uh, China wants to finance its own international trade, both imports and exports, it pretty much entirely does it by uh, borrowing US dollars and it actually has uh, a large amount of Chinese bonds which it sells over overseas in which it raises money in US dollars rather than raises money in, in, in RMB. And that generates a situation where you've got a highly regulated um, exchange rate which is uh, a firewall, I guess, against transmitting uh, financial shock in either direction. Now, we learned about that actually to China's benefit back in 2008 when we had a financial crisis in the rest of the world and we're greatly surprised to find uh, that China, the Chinese economy expanded in the same years that everybody else's economy collapsed. 
Um, and they did it in pretty much the same way they have over the last year, expanding the grand Marxist-Leninist uh, industries like uh, steel and, uh, and iron ore and, and coal, and expanding them very rapidly. What we don't know is that that was then followed by a slowdown in China, which, uh, which they, at the time, uh, blamed on the acceleration of import prices, the rise in uh, international commodity prices uh, that followed the recovery from the, in the rest of the world from the financial crisis. And they, uh, there was this mythology that grew up blaming that on uh, international manipulation by international financiers. Well, for whatever reason, um, what we've got this time is uh, we've got the same kind of rapid acceleration as the Chinese economy that we had last time. Um, but uh, we've, at, the end of the, at the end of that acceleration, the beginning of this year, we had the um, uh, application of uh, what we uh, in the West would call macroprudential tightening. Uh, that is to say re-regulation particularly of, of the property sector and other sectors to reduce the amount of gearing in that, uh, also technology to reduce the amount of gearing in that. There's an excellent article about the political reasons by that, which is written by Kevin Rudd um, and uh, was in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and that was published, I think, on Monday this week. Uh, and he talks about purely the political reasons of Xi Jinping behind that macroprudential tightening this, this year and talks about how that contributes to him running for another five-year term as uh, General Secretary of the Communist Party. There's another article which I referred to uh, is one uh, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal by Nathaniel Taplin, which is more about the economics of, of uh, Evergrande itself. And what it shows is that uh, when you actually look at the debt structure of Evergrande in China, most of the debt and the big debt, big volumes of debt and the big chunks of debt are held by banks which themselves are state-owned corporations. So the shock of the Evergrande collapse would be felt by state-owned banks, which can be immediately recapitalised by the Chinese government. So we've got two things defending us against uh, a world financial crisis resulting from a collapse of an Evergrande or another co company like it over the next year. And there's no doubt there's this dramatic slowdown uh, in the Chinese property sector. And there's no doubt that there's, that's not the only firm that's vulnerable to this kind of thing. First is that China has a highly regulated foreign exchange system, which is not fully uh, part of the international uh, bond market and uh, financial systems the way that we are uh, and the way that Canada is and the way that U US is. And the other one is that most of the, most of the debt is actually held by state banks uh, and, or state banks which are state-owned enterprises. So those two things are the things that uh, stop a major financial crisis happening. But there is a slump uh, in China and uh, and. The reasons behind that slump are also detailed in this article today by uh, Nathaniel Taplin, so I, I, uh, I recommend that. And that's really about how the small investors in an Evergrande-type company will take a hit and therefore 
uh, their demand will fall. And what we see actually, uh, and we look at uh, things like the uh, services PMI in China has fallen very sharply into uh, what we would think of as negative territory uh, in, uh, for the most recent month. And that I think is the slump in real estate transactions in China. So there's no doubt there's a slump in, in demand. And I think that that will continue uh, to affect domestic demand up until about February next year. Uh, which brings me to uh, uh, the thing that's been affecting Australia, and that is the, um, the iron ore market. <clears throat> because of all these events, uh, I've decided to do an update of the iron ore uh, price model every, uh, every uh, month instead of every quarter. The most recent quarterly one is in the um, is in the um, uh, quarterly institutional presentation, and that's on the internal database. I, and I talked about that two weeks ago, and I said that, uh, that what it showed is that when you looked at the structure of uh, um, the iron ore market in China, the level of stocks at port relative to consumption was at the lower end. Uh, of uh, of the the last of the averages for the last twenty years, uh, and the updated uh, uh, ratio was five point four weeks. The long term average is about six and a half weeks. So the current level of stocks relative consumption, even though the level of uh, steel production has fallen dramatically, is about twenty percent below the long term average. So that suggests that it's relatively tight. It doesn't uh, support a continued long term collapse. I think a short-term collapse or a short-term weakness of the iron ore price can hang around until February next year, which is the, the normal period of seasonal weakness. But I think there'll be a strong acceleration of uh, steel production in China next year, um, and that will generate a higher level of demand for Australian iron ore. And then, the, then our equilibrium price in our model is still running at uh, uh, about $150 a tonne, we think that might drift down to between $140 and $120 a tonne by next year, but much stronger than the price currently is for iron ore. But I'll talk about that again uh, on future occasions.